Let's go along to cabin number one. I'll show you something there. All tidied up. up now. Big difference. You should have seen the blood. The whole, the whole place was, well, it's, it's too horrible to describe. Dreadful. And I'll tell you, there's a very important clue was found here. Down there. Well, the murderer, you see, crept in here. Very slowly, of course, the shower was on, there was no sound. And, Welcome to another exciting episode of the Film and Water Podcast. I am your host, Rob Kelly, and with me this week to discuss Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 groundbreaking, you know, what, how many adjectives can you put in front of this movie? Psycho is the editor, creator of the It's Plastic Man blog, Max Romero. Max, thanks for doing the show. Hello, Rob. I've got 12 vacancies. 12, <laughs> 12 cabins. 12 vacancies. <laughs> I hope we've been able to um, hear you over the sound of you eating the candy corn. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was I, I, t- I said to Max before we started the show, should I even bother reciting the plot a little? Because who doesn't know the plot to this movie? Maybe we'll get into that shortly. But before we do any of that, let me just say, hey, Max, why are you such a fan of Psycho? Um, <laughs> I hate the way this sounds, but you can blame my mother. She... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my, I've written before that my dad is kind of responsible for my love of sci-fi, but my mom was the one who got me into mysteries and crime stories and that sort of thing. And when I was very young, we, she sat me down in front of the TV a lot of times to watch Alfred Hitchcock movies. Nice. So, yeah. And, you know, this was, you know, I'm a child of the seventies and the eighties. So this was when cable was coming up and when, uh, VHS was coming up. And, you know, cable especially, they didn't have a lot of, of they, didn't, they didn't necessarily have a lot of programming at the time, so it was a lot of older movies that they would show. And so I watched a lot of Hitchcock, and I was probably maybe eight years old the first time I saw Psycho. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my, my parents were the kind who, <laughs> who didn't mind, you know, terrorizing me when I was a child, I guess. <laughs> and, um, and, yeah, and I just loved it. I loved it. Now, have you like how how many times? Let me say I don't want to say how many times you've seen it, as if that's some sort of uh, marker or how much you love something. But have you seen it a lot? Do you watch it regularly, every so often, or or is it just sort of you know every you know whenever it pops up, then oh hey, let me watch Psycho again. 
it's one of those movies I probably watch at least once or twice a year. Um, I do, and it's also one of those movies that if I catch it on TV by accident, I will usually sit down and watch however much of it is left. Um, interesting. You're right, you're right. Yeah, and it's, but, you know, again, that's, I'm kind of like that with all Hitchcock movies. I'll do the same thing with Rear Window. Ah, uh, uh, my favorite. Yeah, yeah, Rear Window's fantastic. Uh, Vertigo, you know, all those, all those movies I will watch over and over again. Yeah, it's, uh, for me, uh, Strangely enough, when I think of Psycho, I think of um, Andy DeFranco, the musician. Mm. Now, I'll explain that in a second. <laughs> uh, anyone who's listened to the Fire and Water podcast knows I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. always have been for many, many decades at this point. And a bunch of years ago, I saw him in concert, and he had Andy DeFranco opening for him. And I read an interview with Andy DeFranco, and, and one of the questions they asked her was, well, are you a fan of, you know, like, what's it like to open for Bob Dylan? And are you a fan of Bob Dylan? And she said, well, she says, I am. She said, but he was already this historic figure by the time I was born. And so, so she's like, so to me, I will admit, I've had a hard time appreciating him because he's like furniture. He's just so prevalent in the culture that I sort of take him for granted a little bit. And I was like that with Psycho for a long time because, I mean, I much like you, I didn't get it to them at, at eight years old. But, <laughs> but I saw Hitchcock films when I was a teenager, and I loved them, the ones I saw. You know, I saw, like, mostly the ones from the 50s, the color ones, like you mentioned, Rear Window, North by Northwest, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Um, and I always loved them. And I saw Psycho, and I remember really thinking it was great. But, like, as time wore on and I got more and more into film and I would – you know, consider like what were some of my favorite Hitchcocks. I always sort of like pushed Psycho off to the side because it was like furniture. It was just like, oh, we everybody knows that's a classic. Like it, I, it was almost like I wanted to like find an alternative title to select. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because it was just Psycho was just such an obvious answer. And then I don't know, probably about a couple, just a couple of years ago, really, um, I was house sitting for my parents. And I didn't have a whole lot to do, and I was, like, looking at, uh, like, their cable system, like, what movies they had for rent. And much like you just said, there wasn't a lot of older movies, but they had Psycho. And I was like, you know what? I haven't seen Psycho in, like, 20 years. Let me watch this again. So I watched it, and I was just awestruck how great, you know? I was like, I forgot how awesome this movie is. I mean, just how perfect it is how sort of like ruthless it is and it's storytelling. And I just, I just sort of got reacquainted with like, yeah, no one, no, yeah, this is why this film is so, so well regarded because it is a masterpiece. It really is. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I guess we should do a little bit of backstory in terms of how Psycho came about is that by the time Alfred Hitchcock got to Psycho in 19, well, he started developing it in 1959. He had had, you know, a series of, his films had gotten bigger and bigger budgets and bigger and bigger stars. I mean, he was working with Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, Grace Kelly. He was, you know, the most successful director of his day. And other than like Steven Spielberg, maybe you could probably argue still the most famous movie director there ever was. But by the time he got to North by Northwest, he was bored. He, he was, uh, he didn't like that his films cost so much money. Uh, before they even shot a single piece of footage, you know, he had to spend so much money to get Cary Grant, to get, you know, whoever. And he wanted to do something different. He just got tired of making these bigger and bigger movies. And also around that time, he had seen um, uh, La Diabolique, 
the Henry Clouseau movie, which was right. black right. and white, 1955, grisly, tough horror thriller. And he had sort of been worried that he was getting left behind, you know, that his films were getting kind of hot, more and more Hollywood. And here was this guy, Clouseau, making this real gut punch of a horror movie. So he decided, I'm going to do something, go back to my, you know, quote unquote roots, do something tough and small. And he had found uh, the book. Uh, the uh, the book by Robert Block and uh, that which has been based on the, on the real life story of Ed Gein, and right. he hired Joseph Stefano to write the screenplay. And apparently, pitched, I mean, a lot of this is all mentioned in the movie Hitchcock, uh, starring Anthony Hopkins, which I wouldn't really recommend too many people go and find. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he pitched it to the studio. They just said, "No, we don't want to make this. It's about a transvestite. It's it's sick, and it doesn't feature any stars. No." And Hitchcock said, well, I'm still going to make it. And, they oh, said, and I, should, I should mention, too, how hot Hitchcock was to make this movie because the the book by Robert Block, as you mentioned, it had only been published a year that year. It had been published in 1959. Right, yeah. I mean, he jumped right on it. I mean, he was right. he just knew immediately. And so basically the studio said no, and then they finally sort of relented and said, okay, you can make it, but we're not going to give you much money. And so he ended up making it with most of his uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents crew. Uh, so the Psycho and shot it in black and white, as we all know. And so we, he made it as sort of like just a big episode of his TV show. They shot a lot of it on sets that were already constructed for the TV show or already standing. And he, po- he put in a lot of his own money uh, to make Psycho. And everyone thought this is he's, – he's gone crazy. He's gone plum crazy. This film is never going to go anywhere. And then, of course, they released it, and it just tapped into audiences. It hit them, you know, right in the solar plexus, and it became one of his biggest hits, one of the biggest hits of the year. And it made him a very, very wealthy man because, uh, you know, he got this reap a lion's share of the profits. And it really is – I mean, as much as I love his other movies, and I said Ruendo is still kind of my favorite, Psycho is just so – it's for a movie that's so unpleasant in a lot of ways. It's eminently rewatchable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it, there are so many things to it. I mean, it's. Oh, well, let me ask you, Max. I'm sorry, I'm talking for too long. Like, no, what's no. what is? Uh, let me think. Do you have like a favorite scene? Is there, is there a particular oh, part gosh. of it you love more than anything else? Oh, you know, I don't know if I have a favorite scene, but I do have a favorite performance, and that's obviously, I mean, it's going to be an obvious choice. It's Anthony Perkins, Mm -hmm. because he just brings so many little things to the character of Norman Bates that are subtle and... You know, it's it's like you were you were talking about before. You know how you you can kind of push it aside and and you think, oh, you know, you already know Psycho. And I watched it again just today, <laughs> just maybe about an hour ago. I finished awesome. watching it again, and um, I guess it's been a while since I've seen it because I had totally forgotten about the embezzlement subplot. <laughs> right. I had, you know, because you have all these big iconic scenes in your in your mind, and you forget that it's it starts out almost kind of as this crime story. And it's beautifully shot. The black and white is perfect. Um, and and yeah, it's easy to think, oh, I know that movie. But when you watch it again, you, you realize you're really watching a master at work. And he's and, and Hitchcock is just flexing every muscle <laughs> that he's got in this in this movie. And I tend to think that that direction that he was giving to the movie, you know, that um, I don't know how much came from Perkins and how much came from Hitchcock, 
but like you mentioned the candy corn, you know, these, these little ticks that he has, these yeah. little smiles that he gives at like completely the most inappropriate time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and those sorts of things really come across and churn what is not necessarily, I mean, there, there's this heightened tension throughout the movie and, but it's these little things that give it its wrongness and, and that is just relentless throughout the movie. And it just, I think it just ramps up this sense of unease that you have as you're watching it. The, the, the first scene actually for me really sets the whole tone of the movie because it, it, it's a, uh, like a overview of the city that comes in closer and closer on the, on a window of the hotel and you go in underneath a blind into this room, <clears throat> excuse me. And it makes the whole right there. It says the term, the, the, not the term, the, the, the sense of being a voyeur mm-hmm. of seeing something that you're not supposed to be seen. And that kind of carries throughout the movie. And, and that, that uh, sense is just really palpable for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it is a, um, I feel like it's a ruthless movie in terms of how little Hitchcock is letting his audience off the hook at all. I mean, in the, in his previous films, there's a lot of humor and there is some humor in this film, but it's, I mean, you mentioned the whole, you know, embezzlement plot. I mean, it's like the whole thing that drives the first half of this movie is that Janet Lee playing uh, Marion Crane steals the $40,000 from her employer so she can run off with her, her lover played by uh, John Gavin and she's murdered. <laughs> Spoiler alert. She's murdered. <laughs> she's murdered. And the money is, you know, Norman Bates isn't murdering her for the money. He doesn't even know about the money. And he ends up burying the money into the car and into with her body into the swamp. And the money is never seen again. And it's in, it's like, wow, all of this stuff that's driving the plot, and then halfway through, Hitchcock just cuts all that loose. He's just mm-hmm. like, no, who cares? No, 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 that's not even the thing. And I had, like you said, you've forgotten about the embezzlement plot. I had forgotten about the part uh, until I had seen it again a couple of years ago where it's that scene with uh, Norman and Marion in, back in the parlor where she says, I'm going to go back to Arizona and right. try to extricate myself from a, from a situation to put myself. So she's actually atoning. She's ready to atone for what she's done, and she still gets murdered. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's like to me, it's like one of the most downbeat kind of Hitchcock, just relentlessly hitting you over the head with this sort of gloom uh, of like, you know, it's it, and not that it's all a joke, but it's like it's just there's no escape for these people, and I guess in a lot of ways, it's you know, I mean, that had been done in film noir, obviously, that sort of sense of just no matter how well-intentioned you are you just keep paying for your sins no matter how disproportionate the punishment is but it's i had forgotten about all that and i think like the only moment that there's even a slight bit of humor is when norman puts her body into the into the car and then digs it in the swamp and it gurgles and gurgles and starts sinking and then it stops (laughs) right and then they cut back to him and he's like "Uh uh-oh and he looks around like is anybody seeing this and then there's this like what's he gonna do and then the car continues back into the mud and disappears. That's like the one moment of Hitchcock sort of having a little bit of a laugh of like, is this movie going to go different? No, no, no. Okay. Are we ever going to sink the body? And even then it goes dark right again, right away. Because as soon as the car starts going in again, he smiles. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just so creepy. 
Yeah, Norman is obviously clearly severely disturbed. And they said it, it's <laughs> Anthony, per- you know, it's a really sort of um, va- vanity free performance by Anthony Perkins. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he is so twitchy and nervy, but again, not not over the top, you know, not, I mean, he doesn't, I mean, nowadays, if you met somebody like that, you would think of him as a Norman Bates right. and you would run the other direction. But back then it's like, he's just sympathetic enough that you could see Marion Crane thinking, I got a handle on this guy. He's weird, but he's not threatening, you know, he, she seems so much tougher than him. Yes. And, yeah. and that gets completely taken away. And that's something else that Hitchcock did with that, which is amazing is that he, like you said, he spends the entire first act of this movie making you invest in Marion in, in Janet Lee's character and you 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 see her you know struggling as a as what then was an older older woman unmarried who wants to marry her her lover who cannot afford to get married which is why she embezzles the money and you know uh, does something wrong then later atones for it and like you said and it just and and you're invested in this person and you sympathize with this person you want to cheer for her because as you said she she atones and then that person is completely <laughs> taken out of the movie <laughs> yeah it's it's hard for kind me kind of to... wrenches the audience over to um to almost expecting you to side with norman now which is just amazing yeah, because you're like, well, who's left? Who's left? To... Yeah, I mean, it's funny when you think that at the end of the film, we're really left following John Gavin and Vera Miles as Marion's sister. And these are like periphery characters. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, they're sort of main characters by default, almost, right. which is sort of remarkable. I mean, yeah, it. I cannot imagine what a gut punch uh, Janet Lee's murder must have been in 1960. I mean, I just can't imagine it because it still really isn't done nowadays. For the most part, the only thing I can even come think of even close, and I hate to make this comparison because it is not, they're not all equal terms. But there's an action movie called, I think it's called Executive Action with with Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal. And Mm. I think for the time they sold it as like a Steven Seagal movie. And then I think he dies like a half hour into the movie. <laughs> and I remember people were like, what? You, Steven Seagal doesn't that. You know, like even – and that's – you know, that was in the 90s. Even then that was shocking. So I can't picture – Janet Lee was a fairly big star. She got special – you know, she's and Janet Lee at the end of the film. Well, what audience's reaction must have been to that? It must have just, it must have just been unbelievable. Like I can't you – know, you're thinking this guy's breaking every rule of, of movies, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's interesting the way it's when you watch it. Don't you almost feel like you're watching a stage play in some ways uh, because it's a it's a relatively small cast and it's very tightly done. And like you said, these you know what you think is going to be the main character is is wiped away fairly early in, yeah. in this movie. And I mean, she's still the center of the movie in a sense, but it goes from her to Norman Bates to. Um, the detective Arbogast, Arbogast. who was playing uh, by who? Martin Balsam. Martin Balsam. Uh, I know, great love him. Love Martin Balsam. <laughs> he's he, and he's fantastic in this movie. And um, and then spoiler alert: uh, Mother kills Balsam also. Right. And you know, so Hitchcock never gives you any solid ground to stand on. The only thing that is constant through the movie is Norman, mm. and and that that itself is. 
a very unsteady place to be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Martin Balsam because aside from from Perkins and Janet Lee, who are great in this movie, this thing is populated with fantastic character actors, mm-hmm. and I am such a huge Martin Balsam to me is like the equivalent of like a baseball player who you put in and you just know he is going to hit you a triple every time you put him in. This guy has been just a couple of his movies other than Psycho, Catch-22, 12 Angry Men, All the President's Men, Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Taking of Pelham 123, Tora, Tora, Tora. I mean, the guy is amazing. And then what, as I got older and got more into movies, if he shows up in a movie, I put I have like a smile on my face. Sure. Because it's like even if the movie isn't great, he's going to be great in it. He is just <laughs> such a great – and he comes in at right at the right time in this movie where you know, the main murder is happening. You're kind of like, what's going – and now all of a sudden we've got him driving the plot as this, as this detective who's hired to find Marion. Right. And, and, he, and he pulls it off with, with so, much, um, so much ease. You know, he's in you – know, I hate to say, oh, back in those days – but in you know with movies of that time, even the character actors were just superior uh, performers, and like you said, Martin Balsam, you know, he never he never missed. Yeah, the scene with with him with Arbogast and Norman at the hotel when he first invested, to me is like that is a masterclass in acting that scene because it's so natural the way that Arbogast is pushing Norman just. You know, he's pushing him just a little. And you can tell Norman's getting more and more uncomfortable because he's being asked about, have you seen this woman? And at first Norman says, you know, well, nobody's been here for a month. And then he mentions he fl- he screws up and he mentions right. a couple stopping by. And, and then Arbogast says, well, see, that's what I'm talking about. You just said nobody's here. And gets, he trips Norman up. And that – I could watch that scene over and over and over because it is so perfect. And the way they talk over each other, like – a real conversation, and again, in terms of Hitchcock being ahead of his time, you know, it was really sort of setting the stage for a much more naturalistic acting style, which came into vogue in the late '60s and took over in the '70s completely. Uh, but I mean, that scene is just amazing how well those two parry back and forth, and it's you're really uncomfortable because you just right. you're waiting for Norman to explode. And, like, kill Arbogast right there because he keeps he's getting pushed. But Arbogast is so confident that he just keeps nudging Norman about, you know, he's like, uh, you know, you realize that if uh, she asked you to hide her, you you know, he, you'd be making – she'd be making a fool out of you. And Norman's like, well, I'm not a fool. <laughs> and he gets madder and madder. And he's so nice about it. He, you can tell just from the performance that, that the character of Arbogast is, uh, is an experienced detective. Because, like you said, he's he's pushing Norman just a little, but he's also pushing him just enough. Yeah, yeah. He never fly. He never flat out calls Norman a liar. Never mm-hmm. says it. He just keeps insinuating, and just right. and he just gets the sense that something's wrong with this guy. You know, something's wrong here, and he just won't let it go. But it is an amazing and the, as as you said, the whole. I'm glad again you mentioned the character actors because there are some ringers here. In minor roles, there's a couple guys I wanted to mention. There's um, Simon Oakland as Dr. Richmond, who's the guy who mm-hmm. explains everything at the end. Right. I just love the fact that the whole movie stops for him to talk for 10 minutes straight about transvestites. <laughs> John McIntyre as Sheriff Chambers, who I love. He's got these crazy oh, yeah. eyebrows. The guy's crazy. There's this wonderful scene where literally he's in he's in his, his house with – uh, with Sam Loomis uh, and John Gavin and, and Vera Miles, and they call Norman, 
And he says, he's like, Norman, have you seen, there's a, you're looking for this guy. What's his name? And Sam Loomis says, Arbogast. And Chambers goes, Arbogast. Like, he, he draws it out. He's like, it's like 12 syllables. Into Arbogast. And every time I've seen this movie in a theater, and I just saw it last week as the Cinemark ran it oh, nice. uh, for the TCM, did a special petition. People laugh at that. <laughs> because it just, it just you just can't help but laugh just the way he draws that arbo guys. And then the last guy, my favorite guy in the movie, is Frank Albertson as Tom Cassidy, who is the rich oil man in the oh. beginning of the movie. And he's just eating the scenery. He's flirting with Marion. He's talking about, you know, he's he, he's carrying around the 40 grand. And the Pat Hitchcock says, I declare. And he goes, I don't declare. That's how I get to keep it. <laughs> you know, and then he's talking about that he's buys his daughter he, he buys her everything she wants and he's like you know i don't i can't buy happiness i just buy off unhappiness and he's so good at this movie and he, and he makes some comment also about he has the forty thousand in cash because he never carries more than he than he's willing to lose yeah <laughs> so <laughs> fantastic like i i i want I went and looked through his filmography, and I want to find other movies he's in just to see him. But I know he's not going to be as good because there's no way he was given this good of a character. It is right. just unbelievable how fun that guy is. As, as that, and, he, and he's just in that one scene. He comes in, he's just this crazy, cartoony oil man, and then and you never see him again. So, yeah, this movie is just – I don't know why they don't make character actors like that anymore. I can only assume that because movies have been around for so long now that act – there are – kids that want to be actors and they just devote their whole life to that when in 1960 these guys were old enough that they probably had to have other life experiences before they got into acting because hollywood wasn't a thing when they were younger so they probably had to go off and do other things and then they found their way into acting because they, they just bring this gravitas <laughs> to these <laughs> tiny roles I mean, it's unbelievable yeah, this movie is just cast within an inch of its life and uh, you know, it's just as good as the main performances are, and they are tremendous. It's just it's populated with just so many really interesting people. It really is. Um, let me think. What else? I mean, there's anything else? I, there's a couple other things that I just wanted to mention here and there. It's like, it's interesting to how you know, in terms of the level of violence. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, watching uh, Arbogast get it, you don't literally see him stab, but it's pretty pretty graphic for a 1960 movie. You hear him go, and you hear the little. You know, the, I guess the, the, the cassava melon, the cassava yeah. melon, the stabbing, <laughs> you know, and you think about just a couple, just a couple of years later, you know, uh, Ray Dennis Steckler and Herschel Gordon Lewis would be putting out movies that were just grinding people up right. in color. And you think about that, that, you know, that's like 63, 64. So this thing, again, must have landed like a bomb uh, to audiences. Uh, it is the first movie, as has been mentioned in other places, the first movie to ever show a toilet. Mm-hmm. That never happened before. Right. Uh, and it's a plot point, too. Right, it's a plot point, right? Because Marion tears up the the thing, and then they find a piece of it. That that scene actually is, uh, other than the scene with Arbogast, which is an acting scene. My favorite little moment in Psycho is when Sam and uh, I keep forgetting Vera Miles's character name, but um, the sister it doesn't matter. Um, oh, Lila. Oh, Lila, of course. When they are in the the bathroom of Cabin One, and she's looking on the floor, and it's a down shot, and Sam notices. There's no shower curtain. And, right. he, and he just goes, no shower curtain. And then he gets distracted by scene. something else. And you're like, oh, you got to know that's it. Like you want to reach <laughs> into the movie and tell him you're so close that you almost got it. So um, that, I just love that. I love that they make him notice that. Mm-hmm. That that's, you know, sums up. Who doesn't have a shower curtain in, in, in a hotel room? So 
it's, and it's something that you, as the viewer, have to you have to be paying paying attention to the movie to notice that he is paying attention to the fact the fact that there's no shower curtain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a great, it's a wonderful little detail. And again, it's this thing is just like such a wonderfully interlocking puzzle of pieces, and they all fit together so well. And I said, as, as you said, Hitchcock was just firing on all cylinders here, and. Uh, he did other great films after this, The Birds and, and right. uh, Frenzy, I think, is actually really good. But I think maybe you could argue this is the last full-on, unarguable masterpiece in his career. Do you, would, you, would you agree with that assessment? I would think so. I would think so. Because this is, you know, like you mentioned, the studio didn't want to give him any money. He paid for a lot of it out of his own uh, production company. And, uh, you know, obviously he just really, really wanted to make this movie and it shows, it shows. And it's just this, it's kind of like having this, this muscle car that you just strip down to, to the bare essentials. And it, it just, uh, it just works on every level. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that. I love that metaphor. That is great. It does feel like a a movie stripped of all of the excesses and mm-hmm. you still just it's just such a it's just such a kick in the face you know what well, I mean? that, just, even, that even yeah that even goes through the music the the bernard herman oh God, how can we not mention that how can we, <laughs> how can we not mention that yet because you know usually they would have done a full orchestra but again because of the money he just went with uh with a, a string uh not a string orchestra but uh yeah a string orchestra so so that's why you get all those screechy knife stabby you know uh uh score because you know it's just uh that's stripped down too it's just strings and and it just sounds fantastic yeah i love the story that is that I've, i've read about that you know when bernard herman first brought hitchcock that music for the scene hitchcock was like what no, mm-hmm. this isn't going to work. And he played it without the music, and he was like, all right, it works pretty well. And then he tried it with the music, and he went, up. Oh, that's it. Yeah. That's it. And he then said later on that that scene is 50% Bernard Herrmann. Uh, yeah. you know, and it, is, it became you know, one of the – I saw that scene long before I ever saw the movie. It's such mm-hmm. a part in popular culture. Uh, and, in fact, it was funny. The day that I went to see this movie – um, uh, in the theater, I was taking my nephew, and I stopped at the bank beforehand. And the the, the bank teller said, "Oh, what are you doing this afternoon?" And I, you know, I'm, I was like, uh, "I said, well, I'm taking my nephew to a movie." And she goes, "Oh, what are you seeing?" And I said, "Psycho." And she just gave me this blank stare. <laughs> and I said, uh, "You never heard of it?" And she shakes her head no. I said, "Albert Hitchcock, nothing." Oh and said, wow! And I just said, "Oh, okay, well." And I didn't think to mention Bates Motel, which is on TV now. I was like, "Well, that's what it is." But I was so like flummoxed that somebody hasn't heard of Psycho because I'm like, isn't it just part of the culture? Maybe you haven't seen the movie, but you've heard it's just in the culture. And I, you know, I, I didn't participate in World War II, but I've heard of it. You know, <laughs> it was just, I just was so I was so stunned that nobody's ever heard of Psycho. So um, the one last little piece of trivia I will mention, just as a as a sort of because this show is part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, what the connection uh, to between this movie is and the Super Friends. No. <laughs> I, I assume I assume you know what it is, Max, right? No, I don't. This you is, don't know what the connection is? No. Okay. The connection between Psycho and the Super Friends is at the final scene when they the guy come the guard comes in. He says he's cold. Can I give him this coat? Because they have Norman in custody, and he says, "Can I give him this coat?" And they say, "Sure." And the guy walks in. The guard who lets the other guard in is oh. Ted Knight. 
Right. And of course, Ted Knight was the narrator <laughs> on the Super Friends. So 13 years later, there, yeah. So, <laughs> and well, it's funny when people, when I saw it in the theater, you could tell which people recognize him because you could hear people be like, <gasps> you know, like that, like this little gasp, like, oh my God, that's Ted Knight. Because most of the time, if you watch it on television, he's so small in the frame, you can't really tell that it's him. But you see it on the big screen, and there's his face. Like, oh look, it's 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 Ted Baxter. There you go. It's amazing. So, and it's funny. There's one. The last thing I will mention is is like, you know, like I said I didn't see Cycle until I was in my teens. I had seen other pieces, obviously other TV shows and other movies. And like, there's an actor in this movie who plays the car salesman, mm, uh, the guy, yes. the guy that uh, you know, he says, "I don't want any trouble," and, which is a great scene. Now that guy is in an episode of Mash. I saw MASH long before I ever saw Psycho, and now I retroactively think, like, when that guy did MASH in, like, 1982, by then Psycho was already known as a masterpiece. I have to admit, like, if you're on the crew of MASH, do you talk to that guy about Psycho? (laughs) You're like, what was it like to be on Psycho? You know, because, like, all the actors now, except for – is anybody left from Psycho? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I think they're all gone now, sadly. I wouldn't wouldn't think so. Yeah, I I think – maybe, but – yeah, I think I think most of them are gone. So it's like you know, there really isn't anybody around anymore that can talk about it. You know, like what it was like to be on Psycho. And so I would just, I could, oh, you know what? We shouldn't say this. Vera Miles. I just looked it up. Vera Miles oh, is really? still around. So okay, I'm now of course Vera Miles then later appeared in the sequels in the Psycho Two and sort of Anthony Hopkins. But right. I guess the less said about those, they have their charms. Some of them, but uh, you know, is is Pat Hitchcock still around? You know, I, that's a good question. Uh, Pat, I'll, I'll, as we as we talk, I will look that up. Pat Hitchcock is still, <laughs> Pat Hitchcock but, is still around. Oh, okay. So, so, it was okay. was this the was this the last of her of Alfred Hitchcock's movies that she that she uh, had a role in? You know, that's a good. She's really funny in the movie too. I love the whole she bit is. about where uh, where when the, the the oil man flirts with Marion, right. and she says, "Oh, he must have seen my wedding ring." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> Oh, and he he flirts with her pretty hard too. It's <laughs> yeah, that, it is. It is that is the last uh, Hitchcock film that she did. Of his. Oh, okay. she was in other ones, but that's the last one. So right. so yeah, there are still some people around. So that's I, I'm happy to hear that because it's it's just you know I, it'd be amazing. To be like, what would it be like to be on the set of this movie? So, mm-hmm. um, is there anything else before we wrap up? Is there anything else you want to say about Psycho? Uh, well, just it's Psycho is one of those movies that amazes me that it didn't win any Oscars. It was nominated. It was nominated for four Oscars, and it didn't win a single one. Mm. It, it didn't. Uh, it lost. I guess the biggest uh, nomination it has was for director for Alfred Hitchcock, but that went to uh, Billy Wilder for The Apartment. Can't argue with that. I it's mean, a great movie. Yeah, yeah, The Apartment's a great movie. I mean, it, so. didn't, it didn't lose to Crash or anything. <laughs> you know, it lost to another great movie. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but this is just. I think this is one of those movies that. I mean, it was. It was. Not well regarded by critics when it first came out, uh, but people loved it. There were apparently lines going around the block for this movie, and um, but I think it's one of those movies that, with time and with uh, people going back and looking at it again, they realize just what a masterpiece it really is. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those movies that probably at the time was easy to dismiss as some gruesome cheap little thing yeah right crime movie that you know kind of disposable and um you know but it's it's Alfred Hitchcock (laughs) you know I don't know if he ever did anything disposable so yeah it's it's uh it's kind of interesting to look back at it so many years later and and see that it still just really holds up yeah 
Yeah, it is. Just, it's, it is just, and it said it, it has just stayed in the culture, obviously, because there's a Bates Motel series now. There were four sequels, I think. I think or so. Three. And then there was even a, uh, a an attempt to make a Bates Motel TV series in the 80s starring Bud Court as, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a cellmate of uh, Norman Bates' in the institution. And he inherits the hotel. And I guess it was going to be, almost be like some sort of weird horror version of The Love Boat where like different people oh, wow. come in every week. I remember watching it. <laughs> it was a pilot that never sold. So they just aired it just to burn it off. And I remember watching it thinking – how are they going to get a series out of this? You know, <laughs> like, yeah. what a weird premise. So it's just stayed so much in the culture. And of course there was the Gus Van Sant remake, which in itself was an art piece of making a remake exactly the same with the, right. all the same shots and everything else. So it said, it just, it's just, it lodged itself. It's one of those movies that just lodges itself on the culture and it just doesn't go, it doesn't go anywhere. It's just always going to be around. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. I bet, that, I bet that bank teller who didn't know the, uh, who didn't recognize Psycho would have recognized it if you'd done the stabbing motion and made the noise. She would, have, she would have known what that was, I'm sure. Maybe so. That might have been might not have been the best move for me to do. Yeah, you might have yeah. gotten thrown out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I just need my receipt. Yeah, I, could be, yeah I'm sure she's known that scene. Cause every, again, it's, just, it, it's amazing how something you can create something it seems so meant to be sort of like just one-off and maybe even a little flimsy and then it just becomes this this amazing thing that just it just becomes part of the landscape so uh so yeah anybody who hasn't seen psycho for lord god's sakes go see it it's just it's a masterpiece and uh it it's reward it's a movie that rewards multiple viewings and it no matter how much you know all the shocks that are coming it still packs a punch every time you see it and it's just uh, it really is just one of the great film experiences that you're that you're going to ever subject yourself to it's just, just amazing so uh max thank you so much for coming on and doing the show i really appreciate it i really wanted to talk about psycho and and you were super excited so uh where can people find you on the interwebs oh they can find me at it's plasticman.wordpress.com that's my plastic man blog uh you can find me also at my rarely updated great caesars post.com <laughs> <laughs> And uh, you can find me on Facebook and at Twitter at either one of those handles. So Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for doing it. I really appreciate it. And uh, I guess that's really – we're just going to – we're going to say that's a wrap for now. Uh, I want everybody to stay tuned through uh, these commercial messages. You can go take a trip to the lobby and get some soft, get some, uh, soft drinks and some popcorn and come back. But, uh, Max, again, thanks for doing the show. Thank you, Rob. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby. And we're back. Uh, I thought it was a good time to read some listener feedback. As always, you can send us messages uh, at the the Comcast address, which is firewaterpodcast at comcast.net. And the first message we got is on episode five on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and it's from Chuck Coletta. 
And he says, this April I attended the TCM Film Festival in Hollywood. Oh, I'm so jealous. One of the highlights each year is the roster of stars who appeared to discuss their movies, and this year included George Lazenby, who spoke before a screening of OHMSS. You can listen to his comments via the Q&A podcast with Jeff Goldsmith. Thanks for an informative episode. Thank you, Chuck. That sounds really cool. I would love to go to one of those TCM festivals. Uh, we got a comment from... Chris and Cindy Franklin of the Supermates podcast, and Chris says, I've always liked this one, too. I grew up watching the Roger Moore films on the ABC Sunday Night Movie, but I had a friend who was a Bond purist and had seen all the movies. Yes, at even age 10, he was a Bond snob. He preferred Connery and insisted we rent all the Bond films from the local video store. Over time, we did just that, and I came to prefer Connery, too. Sorry, Rob. But then there was OHMSS. It was a standout amongst the films because it actually made a dent in the character. Lazenby was no Connery or more as far as acting, but he worked out well enough. And he also mentions uh, regarding a comment Mike Gillis made. He says, I've always felt that Ra's al Ghul was a Batman Bond villain, but I never quite pinned the origin to this film. It's like Mike flicked a light switch in my head. Great episode. Thank you, Chris. Uh, we got a message from Count Druncula, a.k.a. Ryan Daly. He says, I've seen maybe 15 of the Bond films. Unfortunately, On Her Majesty's Secret Service isn't one of them. From what I gather, though, Casino Royale tried to mimic the end of this movie by having Bond legitimately fall in love with Vesper and quit MI6 before losing her at the end of the movie. Um, yeah, Ryan, there are a lot of comparisons to be made between Casino Royale and OHMSS, and I think there's going to be even more with the uh, new film Spectre coming out in November. Uh, we got an email from Dr. G, the man of nerdology. He says, I am with Chris on the light switch with the Rachel Gould connection to this film in particular. Neil Adams, Bruce Wayne, and a tuxedo is what the comic version of James Bond would look like in my head. And got a comment from Tim Wallace. Uh, he says, on several occasions, I've set my mind to watching and rewatching all the Bond films, but the plans of mice and men. I always end up uh, just hitting the one starring Roger Moore, my James Bond. I've seen several others, but not all of them. Sean Connery was okay. Going to catch heat for that, aren't I? But don't quite understand the hype around him in the role. Not a fan of Timothy Dalton, although I think he'd make an awesome Bond villain. Mostly enjoy the Pierce Brosnan, and I'm still on the fence with Daniel Craig. Sadly, to this day, I have not seen this sole George Lazenby outing. I need to correct that. Absolutely, Tim, you do. It's a great film. Uh, one from Jose Rivera. He says, Hey, Rob, I wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed the latest film in Water episode. On Her Majesty's Secret Service is an amazing Bond film, but for a long time I felt I was the only one who liked it. I love the score, I love the action, and I'm even good with Lazenby's Bond. I adore Telly Savalas' Blofeld. It's maybe heresy, but I wasn't a fan of Donald Pleasant's interpretation in the previous film. My favorite Blofeld comes from his appearance at From Russia with Love and Thunderball, where you didn't see him and he had this intimidating voice. Savalas came close to how I pictured that Blofeld. The only other Blofeld I liked was Max von Sydow, Never Say Never Again, but most people don't count that one. As for your theory on Spectre, I want to add something to that. Say Leah Sadu is Bond's daughter, and they come together at the end. Imagine the gut punch it would be if whoever Christoph Waltz ends up playing kills her unexpectedly in the end the way Blofeld did with Tracy. Uh, that's uh, That would be an amazing thing. I don't know if we're going to do that. I guess we'll find out soon enough. Uh, he says, keep up the amazing work. Can't, to see, can't wait to see what film you do next. Thank you, Jose. I really do appreciate uh, these comments. And then um, we got another one from Jeff Nettleton. He says, Hi, Rob. Enjoyed your discussion with Mike Gillis regarding one of my two top two Bond films on Her Majesty's Secret Service. I grew up with Bond on TV, and Moonraker was also my first at the theater. I saw OHMSS on TV and loved it. I've always championed it as one of the best stories, and I think Lazenby gets a bad rap. I do agree with the idea that Timothy Dalton could have done so much with this one, but Lazenby's pretty darn good. 
I've seen a heck of a lot worse from actors who have started being successful films. I put most of the blame on Cubby Broccoli, who was more interested in the Bond trappings than having Lazenby work to develop his acting skills. They spent far more time on his look and movements. However, they filled out the rest of the cast perfectly. Yeah, that's absolutely true. For whatever weaknesses Lazenby has in the role, the rest of the movie around him is just so good that, that to me, it, it, it carries it off. Uh, regarding episode six, which was The Hidden Fortress, uh, Chris and Cindy Franklin once again. Uh, Chris says, I'm glad you guys just watched The Hidden Fortress so I don't have to feel bad about having never seen it. I knew of it and its influence on Star Wars, but I've never gotten around to it. Now I want to see it even more. Uh, I'm plan- And then regarding um, Ant-Man, which we also covered in that episode, he says, I'm planning on seeing it for the second time this weekend and looking forward to it with a more critical eye, but I still think I'll walk out quite happy with it overall. I do hope we get a sequel because I'd like to see the Wasp debut there before moving on to an Avengers film. Great show as always. Thank you, Chris. Uh, regarding episode 7, The Skeleton Twinge, which I did solo. Chris again. Uh, this movie sounds like one Cindy and I would rent in our pre-kid days. I've gotten so used to sunny kid fare, anything else really knocks me for an emotional loop. This sounds like it would leave quite an impression on anyone. I may have to check it out if we get some quiet time. Well, I hope you do, Chris. I think it's uh, absolutely worthwhile, worth on your time, worth your time. Luke Dobb wrote, I really like Kristen Wiig and the choices she continues to make for her career. In addition to being one of the funniest female comedians I've ever seen, she has an incredible depth and sensitivity. Something about her makes me want to both laugh and cry at the same time. She seems like the kind of person you could be 100% of yourself with, at least by the role she plays. Uh, he says, I remember seeing the trailer for Skeleton Twins and wanting to pick it up. Now I definitely have to look for it. Yeah, like I said, uh, it's on Netflix, so you don't have to look far. It's uh, absolutely worth your time. Uh, episode 8 was the Death of Superman Lives show. Count Druncula, Ryan Daly wrote it again. He says, your description of the production art, design, and the Brainiac ideas have me very intrigued. But until I actually see the movie, I can't imagine Nicholas Nicolas Cage Superman movie as anything but a bullet dodged. Uh, Chris wrote in, once again, thank you, Chris. Now I really want to see this. I'm thinking the same thing you said, Rob. Nowadays, we just look at this as another take. But in 1998, it was the take. And there was a lot riding on this film. Even while it was in production, it sounded like a train wreck. And Burton had kind of become dot, 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 Burton by that point. Well, just look at Batman Returns. I didn't want him over-Burtonizing Superman. Yeah, that's absolutely the worry I had going into it. And like I said, check out Death of Superman Returns. Uh, You might change a few minds. Uh, We got an email from... Darren of uh, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, and he says, uh, like you, Rob, I do like Superman Returns, but I agree that it is flawed, but in my opinion, it's less flawed than Man of Steel. Brandon Routh was great in the role, and I always thought Brian Singer understood the character. Yeah, I, I thought Brandon Routh was, was really pretty good as Superman, especially in what a tough hill he had to climb trying to replace Christopher Reeve in, in like literally a sequel to those films, and uh, the fact that he even did manage to pull it off at all says a lot about the... Uh, his performance. And I think he's been good in other things too. So uh, I'm kind of, I feel bad that we'll never get to see him again as Superman. Uh, Regarding episode nine, Chris Franklin, once again, after hearing about this film for years, I finally saw it on TM about 10 years or so ago. It was a bit of a slog for me, honestly, with the sound quality and the slow parts. I will admit the freaks made me a bit uncomfortable, but I think it's that's kind of the point. I struggle with the exploitative angle of it, but it sounds like they came to Browning, not vice versa. Speaking of which, Dracula and the simultaneously filmed Spanish version are coming to theaters in October through Fathom Events and TCM. The Spanish film is far superior, using the same sets and suiting script, but coming across as an actual atmospheric horror film, not a staged, not a filmed stage play. But you'll like the charismatic presence of Bella Lugosi. I'm probably in for a screening of these, despite Dracula's shortcomings. Bella is worth it. Yeah, I'm absolutely going to go to that. I, I think I go to virtually all the... Turner Classic Movie events that they do with Fathom and uh, the Dracula double feature sounds like a, a ton of fun. So, 
Uh, we got an email from BradleyMan612. He says, uh, regarding Freaks, I love this film. I think it's a cautionary drama. It's horrific, but not really horror. It's also the film I have gotten the most drunk watching. A friend of mine and I showed it to a film group in college and took shots based on audience reaction. Seemed fun until the next morning. Having excited, having excited new fans yell, one of us is harsh on the hungover. On the, on the hungover. And then uh, finally, we got an email from Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks. And this isn't directed at any given episode. It's more of a generalized comment about the film and water shows. He basically says to me uh, that he is demanding to appear on any episode where we might cover Ghostbusters. And in fact, he actually sort of threatens me with physical violence if I get any, somebody else to do it. Um, I appreciate your enthusiasm, Nathaniel. Uh, as I said when I wrote back to Nathaniel, I'm not sure we're going to do an episode of Ghostbusters because I don't know what there is to say about it. It's awesome. Everybody loves it. I don't, I've never met anybody who doesn't like Ghostbusters, so I'm not really sure what the point would be of even covering it. Um, although that didn't, got me, that didn't stop me from covering Citizen Kane, and that's a pretty popular movie. I did make an offer to Nathaniel that maybe he could come on and we will cover the Ghostbusters remake or reboot or whatever the heck it is that's coming out next summer. Uh, he's unsure about that, whether he's even going to see it or not. I know I'm going to see it because I'm just so curious, especially with all the news that virtually everybody from the original movie is back in some form or the other. So, uh, anyway, again, Nathaniel, I appreciate the enthusiasm, if not the physical threats. As I said, if you want to shoot an email to the show, it's firewaterpodcast at comcast.net. If you want to talk about the Film and Water podcast on Twitter, Please use the hashtag we use for all the Fire and Water Family podcast shows, which is hashtag FW Podcast. And uh, the new thing to mention is, in between the last episode and this one, the Film and Water Podcast has its own Twitter feed. So you can find it at, at Film and Water Pod. So I really would appreciate it if you, when next time you're on Twitter, you uh, hit follow so you can uh, keep up what's going on with the show. I'm really, really happy that I kind of have a, a place on Twitter to sort of talk about movies. It's it, it's obviously focused on the show itself, but I also just talk about movies in general. So anyway, please follow it. It's Again, it's Film and Water Pod, the Film and Water Podcast on Twitter. I really would appreciate it if you would, uh, you know, retweet and reply to, to what we're sending out there and hopefully we'll build up a nice little fan community the way we did with Fire and Water. That is going to do it. I thank Max Romero once again for coming on to talk about Psycho. He did a great job when he was on uh, Fire and Water talking about Plastic Man. He's always a great guest, so I'm happy to have him on, and we'll have him back soon. Uh, So I guess that's pretty much going to be it. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, look forward to seeing you all on the next episode. Until then, that's a wrap. I'm buying this house for my baby's wedding present. $40,000 cash. Now, that's that's not buying happiness. That's just buying off unhappiness. (laughs) I never carry more than I can afford to lose. Count them. I declare. I don't. That's how I get to keep it.